And folks, uh, that's how we beat COVID-19, by working together. We have an expression in that little town of Clayman I'm from. Uh, you all brung me to the dance, Labor. You're the, you're the reason I'm standing here. Not a joke. Not a joke. I can look when I was 29 years old to the United States Senate, 17 days before I was eligible to be sworn in. I had to wait around to be sworn in. Not a joke as well. And uh, I won by 3,300 votes and labor. Labor, including the police unions as well as the firefighters, stood up and endorsed me. And because I, I kid with the governor, I said I grew up in a town called Claymont, Delaware, from third grade on. I went to a little Catholic school called Holy Rosary, and across the street from Holy Rosary was, a, was the fire station. And the guys I grew up with, they became either a firefighter, a cop, or a priest. I wasn't qualified for any of them, so I had to be president. And so, but look, it's, it's been a month since I laid out a six-part plan to accelerate the path out of this pandemic. One, vaccinate the unvaccinated. Two, continue to keep the vaccinated protected. Keep children safe and schools open, which the governor's doing. Increase testing and masking. Protect the economic recovery and improve the care of the people with COVID-19. We've made real progress across the board. More than 185 million Americans are now fully vaccinated. More than 75% of eligible Americans have gotten at least one shot. We made great progress on equity as well, in closing the, the racial, the, the gaps in race as well as ethnic uh, vaccination rates. Recent data shows Latino Americans, Black Americans, Native Americans, and Asian Americans have now gotten vaccinated about the comparable rate as white Americans. That's not happened before. And our work on equity isn't done, but it's an important piece of progress. We're also starting to see less than 19 less COVID-19 cases in a vast majority of communities around the country. Cases are down this past month by 40 percent. Hospitalizations are down by 25 percent. We're headed in the right direction if we don't if we keep our eye on the ball here. We still have a long way to go. The fact is, this has been a pandemic of the unvaccinated. Unvaccinated. The unvaccinated overcrowd our hospitals, overrunning emergency rooms and intensive care units. The unvaccinated patients are, are leaving no room for someone with a heart attack or in need of a cancer operation, and so much more because they can't get into the ICU, they can't get into the operating rooms. The unvaccinated also put our economy at risk because people are reluctant to go out. Think about this. Even in places where there is no restriction on going to restaurants and gyms and movie theaters, people are not going. And anywhere near the numbers because they're worried they're going to get sick. I've tried everything in my power to get people vaccinated. First thing I did when I was sworn in office back in January 20th is I bought enough vaccine right off the bat to vaccinate every single American. There were only 4 million Americans who have been vaccinated up to that point, even though the virus had been around. Second, we made everyone eligible to get a vaccination and made it easy and convenient for them to find a place to get vaccinated, over 880,000 places around the country. Third, we gave everyone ample time and information to deal with their concerns. We developed hundreds of million, we, millions of dollars in incentives. You did here in the city and the state of, of, of Illinois. In cities and community organizations to encourage vaccinations. Governor Pritzker, Pritzker, you've done one hell of a job in terms of encouraging people before we get to the mandate. But even after all these efforts, we still had more than a quarter of the people in the United States who were eligible for vaccinations but didn't get the shot. 
And we know there is no other way to beat the pandemic than to get the vast majority of Americans vaccinated. It's as simple as that. And to, and to, to spread to our children, to spread throughout society, in our hospitals, or the risk of other variants, it's all dangerous and obvious, but we're still not there. We have to beat this thing. So while I didn't race uh, to do it right away, that's why I've had to move toward requirements that everyone get vaccinated where I had the authority to do that. That wasn't my first instinct. My administration is now requiring federal workers to be vaccinated. We've also required federal contractors to be vaccinated. If you have a contract with the federal government working for the federal government, you have to be vaccinated. We're requiring active duty military to be vaccinated. We're making sure healthcare workers are vaccinated because if you seek care at a healthcare facility, you should have the certainty that the people providing that care are protected from COVID and cannot spread it to you. The Labor Department is going to shortly issue an emergency rule, which I asked for several weeks ago, and they're going through the process to require all employees with more than 100 people, whether they work for the federal government or not, this is within the uh, in the purview of the Labor Department, to ensure their workers are fully vaccinated or face testing at least once a week. In total, this Labor Department vaccination requirement will cover 100 million Americans, about two-thirds of all the people who work in America. And here's the deal. These requirements are already proving that they work. Starting in July, when I announced the first vaccination requirement for the federal government, about 95 million eligible Americans were unvaccinated, as was mentioned a little bit earlier. Today, we've reduced that number to 67 eligible Americans who aren't vaccinated. And today, we released a new report outlining effective vaccination requirements that are already proving their, their worth. This report shows three things. First, vaccination requirements result in more people getting vaccinated. In the past few weeks, as more and more organizations have implemented their own requirements, they've seen their vaccination rates rise dramatically. For example, the Department of Defense has gone from 67% of active duty forces being vaccinated to 97% as of tomorrow. Vaccination just six weeks into this vaccination requirement. That's how quickly it's moved. We're also seeing this at colleges and universities across the country. More than 95% of students at colleges and universities like Northwestern University of Illinois, Chicago, are vaccinated. And we're going to see it in health systems around the country as well. Rush University Medical Center here in Chicago has gone from 72% to more than 95% of its employees fully vaccinated under its requirements. These requirements work. And as the Business Roundtable and others told me when I announced the first requirement, that encouraged businesses to feel they could come in and demand the same thing of their employees. More people are getting vaccinated. More lives are being saved. Let's be clear. When you see headlines and reports of mass firings and hundreds of people losing their jobs, look at the bigger story. I've spoken with Scott Kirby, CEO of United Airlines, who's here today. United went from 59% of their employees to 99% of their employees in less than two months after implementing the requirement, 99%. And by the way, Scott, I want you to know I've instructed the Justice Department to make sure that we deal with the violence on aircraft coming from those people who are taking issues. We're going to deal with that. In the last days of their implementation, they cut the remaining number of employees left to get vaccinated in half. 
They went from 67,000 employees to 66 of 67,000, 66,800 complied. People chose to get vaccinated. That's why we're seeing more companies signing up. I recently met with the CEOs of Disney, Microsoft, who you're familiar with here, Walgreens, to hear about their requirements. The Business Roundtable represents 200 of the largest businesses in the world and has championed vaccination requirements to keep businesses open and workers safe. <clears throat> America's largest aerospace companies, Lockheed Martin, Raytheon, who I met with yesterday, the chairman of the board, Northrop Grumman, they all just announced plans to implement vaccination requirements. <clears throat> Even this I always get a kick out of. Fox News. <laughs> Fox News requires vaccinations for all employees. Give me a break. Fox News. And over the past week, we've seen American, Southwest, Alaska, JetBlue Airlines all announce requirements. The leaders of Chicago are step stepping up. As I said, the mayor, uh, Mayor Lightfoot, Governor Prisker are requiring vaccinations for state and city workers, healthcare workers, and teachers. Chicagoland Chamber of Commerce, Jack Levin, who is here, has called for all members of his of the of the chamber to require vaccinations for their employees going back to work in person. And I came here to Clayco to thank this company for doing the right thing. Today, Clayco is announcing it's going to require all employees to be fully vaccinated or test once a week. It matters. I know these decisions aren't easy, but you're setting an example and a powerful example. Second thing I'd like to say, today's report shows that vaccination requirements are good for the economy. Not only increasing vaccination rates, but to help send people back to work. Back to work. You know, when I first started the vaccination program and we got all that vac vaccine enough for everyone, we're vaccinating three million people a day. We're getting very close before things began to slow down. The economy is growing leaps and bounds. Six percent, the fastest growing major economy in the world. In fact, increased vaccination coverage results in as many as five million American workers going back to work because they feel safe they can go back to work. There'll be more economic demand to drive people back to the workforce. But don't take it from me, not from some you know, liberal think tank this comes from. But here's what Wall Street's saying. Goldman Sachs, quote, vaccinations will have a positive impact on employment. It means less spread of COVID-19, which will help people return to work. Moody's on Wall Street. Vaccination means fewer infections, hospitalizations, and death. In turn, it means a stronger economy. One economist called vaccine requirements, and I quote, the single most powerful, he didn't say single, the most powerful economic stimulus ever enacted, end of quote. Third point I'd like to make. The report shows that vaccination requirements have broad public support. Yes, some object, and some object very strenuously. And some are making a political statement out of this issue. But a strong bipartisan majority of Americans support vaccinations. They know it isn't about politics. It's about life and death. That's what it's about. It's about looking out for one another. It's about being patriotic, doing the right thing. Folks, vaccination requirements work, and there's nothing new about them. They've been around for decades. We've been living with these requirements throughout our lives. Students, healthcare professionals, our troops, 
have been required to receive vaccination for everything from polio to measles to mumps to rubella. And the reason most people in America don't worry about polio, measles, mumps, rubella is because they've been vaccinated. I don't quite get this, you know, why it's a matter of no violation of your right to be able to go to school or get a job to have, et cetera. But now it's a great cause to celebrate. So today I'm calling the more employers to act. My message is require your employees to get vaccinated. With vaccinations, we're going to beat this pandemic finally. Without them, we face endless months of chaos in our hospitals, damage to our economy, and anxiety in our schools, and empty restaurants, and much less commerce. Look, I know the vaccination requirements are a tough medicine. I'm popular with some, politics for others, but they're life-saving. They're game-changing for our country. We're in a position to leap forward in a way that we haven't for a long, long time economically. Businesses have more power than ever before to change the arc of this pandemic and save lives and protect and grow our economy. So as president, I'm going to continue to do everything I can to get us out of this pandemic. I look forward to more businesses joining that effort. And for folks who haven't gotten vaccinated, get it done. Do the right thing. It can save your life. It can save the lives of those around you. You know, if I can digress for just a second. Last night I was on the television. On television, I was on the telephone with uh, a person at an emergency hospital ward in Pennsylvania because a good friend had called and he had rushed his significant other to the emergency room because this woman was having trouble breathing, had a high fever and could not really catch her breath. And they got her into the hospital, but the waiting room was so crowded, things were so backed up, they couldn't even get her to be seen initially. So because I knew this person, I called, I called the desk, the receiving nurse, and asked what the situation was. And has anyone even, and by the way, I wasn't complaining because they're getting the living hell kicked out of them, by the way. Doctors and nurses, some of them are just, they're running dry. I really mean it. They're getting the living hell kicked out of them, and sometimes physically. And to make a long story short, it took a while because all of the, not all, the vast majority of the emergency rooms and the docs were occupied taking care of COVID patients. I bet every one of you can name somebody who got sent to the hospital with something other than COVID and couldn't get it taken care of. How many people do you know, I know, who've had to put off elective surgery, surgery they need done, but they couldn't get a hospital room? Didn't mean they were gonna die in many cases, but some places in the world that's happening. You can't even get to the, do the elective surgery that's necessary, particularly for a lot of cancer patients. So look, things are changing and we can end this. We can end this thing. It's easy, it's accessible, and it's free to get the vaccine. Text your zip code to 438829, 438829. Text your zip code there or visit vaccines.gov 
to find a vaccination location near you. I promise there's one within five minutes of where you are, 15 minutes of where you are. And it's free. Let me close with this. We have a plan. We have the tools. We're using them. We're making progress. We just have to finish the job. Finish the job. So for God's sake, for your own sake, for the sake of your families, get vaccinated. We can do this. We can do this if we do it together. And we can literally change the circumstances, the health, the camaraderie, the employment, and the access to a growing economy if we step up and lead the world. And one last thing I'd like to mention, which is not directly, it's not part of what I was going to say today, but I've made a commitment that just like World War II, we were the arsenal of democracy providing the means by which the Allies could fight and win the war. We're the arsenal of vaccines. I've not only purchased enough vaccine to make sure every single American can get a vaccine shot, get the full dose, and a booster, but provided for already we put out a million eight hundred thousand doses of vaccines in other parts of the world, and we're going to end up doing over a billion two hundred million doses between now and the end of the first quarter of next year. Because, you know, it's not just being decent and honorable what we, what we can do, but it's in our own naked interest. If we haven't learned before, you can't build a wall high enough to keep out you can't, a virus. You can't do it. You cannot do it. So we have an obligation in our own naked self-interest to help other countries. And by the way, I I've I've travel the world. I've met with all the major world leaders, and I'm going to continue to meet with them. And guess what? Other countries are making like they're really doing a great deal. We have provided more vaccines around the world than every other country in the world combined. Combined. And guess what? Unlike China and Russia and others, we're not asking a single thing. Not a single thing in return. Nothing. Nothing. It's having a profound impact on how we're viewed. So those of you who haven't gotten vaccinated who may be listening to this broadcast, please get vaccinated. Please. God bless you all, and may God protect our troops. Thank you so very much. Thank you. Welcome to the Lean Jake Tapper. We've been listening to President Joe Biden uh, speaking outside Chicago, talking about the importance and effectiveness of COVID vaccines and also the COVID vaccine mandates, how they have been working, he's been arguing. I want to go straight to CNN's Jeff Zeleny, who's been traveling with the president in Elk Grove Village, Illinois, right outside Chicago. And Jeff, this, this wasn't just about praising companies who have already instituted mandates, such as United Airlines, but also the president calling on more employers to to do the same, to follow their lead. Jake, explicitly the president calling on employers of really all varieties and stripes, big companies and small companies, to follow the lead of really a litany of examples that he gave. Uh, United Airlines, of course, headquartered 
uh, here in Illinois, uh, has 99% of its employees now vaccinated because of those vaccination requirements. So the president using them as an example, saying this is the only way out of this pandemic. This is the only way to move forward economically. So uh, striking the degree to which he is using that economic argument to try and propel other companies to follow suit. But, Jake, the history of this is fascinating. At the beginning of this year and really throughout the winter and spring and early summer months, this president was not in favor of vaccination mandates. In fact, he said today it was not his first instinct. But this is something that has worked unlike anything else has. This is something that really has affected the bottom line of employees and companies as well. So this is turning the corner. But the president clearly said we're not there yet. All right, Jeff Zeleny with the president outside Chicago in Elk Grove Village, Illinois. Also today, Pfizer has announced it is seeking FDA emergency use authorization for its COVID vaccine for young children. That's ages 5 to 11. And as CNN's Omar Jimenez reports for us now, that news comes as all of the COVID stats in the United States are right now headed in the right direction. It's the beginning of a new phase in the fight against COVID-19, as Pfizer officially requests emergency use authorization from the FDA for vaccinating 5 to 11-year-olds. The White House COVID response coordinator says they're ready. We're working with states uh, to set up convenient locations for parents and kids to get vaccinated, including pediatricians' offices and community sites. So we'll be ready pending uh, the CDC and FDA action. It could mean shots in young kids' arms as soon as the end of October. But even now, the U.S. is getting better, still averaging over 100,000 new COVID-19 cases a day, according to Johns Hopkins. But that's more than 11 percent down from last week's average and a 26 percent decrease from last month. Deaths and hospitalizations also down, all driven by the vaccine. Yet many are still skeptical. Remember, we've lost now 100,000 Americans uh, over the summer uh, from COVID-19 overwhelmingly here in the South, despite the availability of safe and effective vaccines. We know what this is. This is defiance. And I don't even call it for misinformation or disinformation anymore, Anna. I call this anti-science aggression. And on masks, currently more than 99% of the U.S. population lives in a county where people should be wearing one indoors, according to CDC guidance including Cook County and the Chicagoland area where President Joe Biden is visiting today. Since September, we've actually seen a decline in Delta, and that's encouraging. As we scale up our vaccination, hopefully get up to that 80 percent range, we're going to see a decrease in the intensity of COVID-19. The disease spectrum will become more mild. People won't die. Despite improvements countrywide, the pandemic has still created sobering realities. COVID-19 has taken the parents or grandparent caregivers of 140,000 U.S. children, minorities at a higher rate, according to the CDC and other researchers. Available data through June showed that racial and ethnic minorities accounted for 65 percent of those who lost a primary caregiver, while white children accounted for 35, even though minorities make up just 39 percent of the U.S. population. And as serious as those inequities are, overall, things do seem to be headed in the right direction. Plus, the possibility of an antiviral pill against COVID-19, along with the prospects of having vaccinated 5 to 11-year-olds, have some, including former FDA Commissioner Scott Gottlieb, optimistic they could be bookends to this pandemic. At the very least, a light at the end of what has felt like 
a very long tunnel. Jake. All right, Omar Jimenez in Chicago. Thanks so much. Appreciate it. Joining us now to discuss CNN Chief Medical Correspondent Dr. Sanjay Gupta. He's also the author of the brand new, excellent book, World War C Lessons from the COVID 19 Pandemic and How to Prepare for the Next One. Sanjay, uh, let's stick with this uh, pandemic for now uh, and start with Pfizer seeking FDA emergency use authorization of the COVID vaccine for kids 5 to 11. Walk us through this process and when. Parents of kids that age can expect to take their kids for a shot. Yeah, well, so Pfizer feels like they have the data. I mean, that's the bottom line. That's why they're submitting it. We've been following these clinical trials for a while. They've done this a few times, obviously, throughout this pandemic for for different age groups' uh, vaccines. And so they feel like they have it. October 26th is when this advisory committee to the FDA meets over the next few weeks. They're going to look at this data, and they're going to meet and they're going to make a recommendation. So it could be by October 27th that the FDA then potentially weighs in and says, yes, we authorize or we don't. Remember, with authorization, Jake, the, the metric that they're using is do the rewards outweigh the risks? So that's what they're really trying to answer at that committee meeting. And then if it all goes uh, the way it has gone in the past, the CDC then officially recommends it. That's that's sort of the, the time course. Now, remember, Jake, uh, it's two shots, right? So this is a, a single shot, and then three weeks later, another shot, and then two weeks after that is when someone would actually be considered vaccinated. So even if, let's say, by Halloween it's authorized, it, it does take some time for those children to actually be considered vaccinated uh, with what is also a smaller dose, 10 microgram dose of the vaccine, as opposed to the 30 micrograms that everyone else is getting. With adults, vaccines were distributed in tiers, certain Subgroups were prioritized over others. Understandably, people that were more vulnerable were, right. were prioritized. What will rollout of this vaccine look like if authorized? Yeah, so this is an interesting question, Jake. I don't, there doesn't seem to be any indication that it's going to be sort of stratified by risk factors. You know, people who may be uh, at increased risk of developing serious illness among 5 to 11-year-olds. Uh, kids who have, you know, underlying illnesses, for example. Uh, this is going to, it sounds like it's going to go out... Obviously, not to places like nursing homes, but more to pharmacies and pediatricians' offices. So that's that's primarily where it looks like it's going to be to be given. And they've been putting in place. You know, pediatricians have already started requesting allocations of the uh, of the vaccine at that dose uh, in case this gets authorized. So the, the the expectation is, the hope is that by the end of October, that the that many of these offices will have the doses in place. Now, earlier, Sanjay, you talked about the FDA Advisory Committee and then the FDA ultimately itself deciding whether or not the benefits of this vaccine, the smaller dose for kids 5 to 11, whether those benefits outweigh the risks. What are the risks? Should parents anticipate any side effects in their kids from this vaccine? This, this, so these trials in, in this age group were started in March. So they've been following along, you know, looking for side effects or anything that's a, sort of unusual for, for a few months now. What they have found is that the, the um, side effects are very similar to what they saw in adolescents that were a bit older, you know, 12 to 18. Uh, sore arm, fever, you know, headaches, uh, le- lethargy, some, things like that that could last a day or two typically. They didn't see anything else that sort of, um, uh, I think, made them concerned about safety overall. What is interesting is that they did decide to go with a a significantly lower dose again, 10 micrograms instead of 30. And that was interesting. I think the, the, the thinking behind that was that even with 10 micrograms, the smaller dose, they were still getting the same amount of antibodies as people who were older were getting when they took 30 micrograms. And 
it'll probably reduce the side effect profile because it's a smaller dose. They're likely to have fewer of those side effects that we're just talking about. But that's overall the same thing that they were saying with the, uh, again, with the older kids. Once a vaccine is available for kids 5 to 11, potentially how much of the United States population Hmm. will be vaccinated? Because we know, unfortunately, it's still a minority of people 12 to 18 who are vaccinated. Their parents are not taking them in the numbers the United States needs and these kids need for protection uh, to get vaccinated. Well, you know, I think that if you look at the overall polling, about a third of parents say they will go do this right away. About a quarter say they will never do it. Um, And then everyone else is sort of in the middle, you know, so it, it depends. I think those numbers do change a bit when the FDA actually officially authorizes something. It does give an affirmation there. Um, but I think it's going to be a lot of conversations that are happening between pediatricians and parents and, and these kids, you know, over the next uh, few weeks and months, basically saying you are at much lower risk of getting sick. You are at much lower risk of, of uh, having a problem with COVID, but there's still a risk and there's a risk of getting sick and having even persistent symptoms. But there's also, to your point, Jake, uh, the benefit to the collective that you'll be able these holidays to more safely visit with grandparents and things like that. If you are a child who, who's now vaccinated, this is a, this is a, a, um, a opportunity for people to, to really normalize their lives in some way for themselves, but also for the population. The trend line looks good, Jake, right now. Cases coming down, hospitalizations coming down, as you mentioned. Yeah. This could hopefully kind of help extinguish some of those, those embers that will still remain at that time. And if anybody out there is, is wondering, Sanjay has three daughters. I have a daughter and a son, and they're all vaccinated. My, right. my son just turned 12. We took him to get his first shot. We're going to get the second shot in three weeks. Dr. Sanjay Gupta, thanks so much. Appreciate it. Sanjay's new book, World War C, is out right now. Lawmakers announce a deal to avoid economic doom, but they could be fighting about it again before Christmas. And are authorities closing in on Gabby Petito's fiance? What police are now saying as his dad even joins the search? His dad? Stay with us. And our politics lead, Senate Majority Leader Chuck Schumer, just announced there will be a vote tonight, a vote to keep the United States from an economic catastrophe, at least for a few more weeks. We're talking about a vote to raise the debt ceiling, which sounds complicated, maybe even boring, until you realize this action will allow the United States government to pay its bills. And Congress, failing to act, would harm millions of our fellow Americans and send the U.S. economy and possibly others Spiraling. As CNN's Ryan Nobles reports, the final details are still being ironed out right now behind the scenes. We have a deal. We have reached agreement to extend the debt ceiling through early December, and it's our hope that we can get this done as soon as today. Senate Majority Leader Chuck Schumer announcing a bargain with Republicans to raise the federal debt ceiling before the government was set to crash through it next week. The deal means Republicans will allow a vote on the measure, but only for a short amount of time meaning the standoff isn't over, just delayed. But are we having this entire conversation all over again in December? Yep. It gets the Treasury Department through the first week in December. Secretary Janet Yellen stresses a long-term solution is critical. And default will call into question the full faith and credit of the United States. Our country would likely face a financial crisis. 
Yellen's warnings paint a picture of an economic catastrophe that could impact millions of Americans, leading to things like job losses, including the stoppage of paychecks to federal workers and members of the military, shutting down the flow of cash to states and unallocated COVID relief funds. Americans would also lose out on things like tax refunds, some Medicare benefits, and Social Security payments. There could be a near freezing of the American credit market, making it harder to obtain things like mortgages or car loans, and a massive hit to the U.S. gross domestic product that could take months to overcome. The standoff comes as Democrats are still negotiating over a path forward on President Biden's domestic agenda. Key Senator Joe Manchin of West Virginia is tangling with the Budget Committee Chairman Bernie Sanders, who wants Manchin to state specifically what he wants cut from the package. It's not good enough to be vague. You want to cut child care? How much do you want to cut child care? You want to cut climate? Cut climate. What? How much do you want to do that? Tell us with some specificity what you want. Manchin was at the White House today and says they are making progress, but he isn't offering much detail. The president has his, his, his priorities, okay, I'm, and, and he knows I have my priorities, and, and, and uh, he's my president, and I, I want him to succeed, and I want our country to succeed. And there is a series of votes scheduled to solve this debt ceiling crisis, at least in the short term, set for tonight at 730. But nothing in the United States Senate comes easy. Of course, it just takes one Republican to force a filibuster that would require 60 votes in order to get this to the floor. Senator Ted Cruz of Texas has said that he is willing to do that. So right now, Mitch McConnell is scrambling to find 10 Republicans willing to take this vote so that the debt ceiling is not crashed into next week. Jake, we're confident, or at least he's confident that's going to happen, but we won't know until the votes are cast later tonight. Jake. Here to discuss, thank you so much, Ryan. Here to discuss, Democratic Congressman Mondaire Jones of New York. He's a member of the Congressional Progressive Caucus. Uh, Congressman, we're hearing some gripes from conservative Senate Republicans like Ted Cruz and Lindsey Graham who, who are upset that Mitch McConnell made this deal with Chuck Schumer. Uh, you're on the other side of this with the progressives uh, in the House. Are you okay with Senate Democrats accepting this compromise from McConnell to temporarily increase the debt ceiling? Well, Jake, it's great to be on. And I think I'm with the American people, not just progressives, but with the American people who are tired of this gamesmanship. I mean, who would have thought that we would find ourselves in a situation where the party of Donald Trump is threatening to default on our obligations? Uh, We heard the Secretary of the Treasury uh, talk about how the full faith and credit of the United States of America would be called into question. Uh, What she may not have said is that millions of people would lose their jobs as well were we to default, according to a number of experts who have studied this issue. Uh, It's so shameful, especially given that so much of the debt that we have uh, is because of the, the spending that occurred under the presidency of Donald Trump. Uh, spending that was not paid for, unlike the $3.5 trillion uh, budget reconciliation bill, which is entirely paid for, by, proposed by the president of the United States. I agree that it's good that we're not going to default because it would cause economic calamity and, and hurt lots of people, uh, innocent people not involved with this. It'd be something else if this only hurt the people who were responsible on Capitol Hill. But some Democrats uh, don't want this deal. They say it's just kicking the can uh, down the road and we're again going to be on the verge of economic collapse uh, at the end of November when this is back up for debate. Well, I, I share those concerns. Uh, I will note that, you know, I, I have a lot of faith in the majority leader, Chuck Schumer, 
Uh, and then people like Elizabeth Warren who have said, you know, Mitch McConnell caved and this is the best we could get in this moment. Uh, but long term, we've got to do something about this. We, we shouldn't be having to even raise the debt ceiling uh, every year or so. Uh, this is something that should be taken care of permanently. And that is something that you'll see myself and others pushing to do. Uh, for the time being, it would appear that this is the best we can get from our friends on the other side of the aisle. But it really is shameful that Republicans will play these kinds of games. This deal does give Democrats time to negotiate this a deal on, on the uh, Build Back Better Act, uh, which expands social welfare programs uh, like child care, like elder care. It expands Medicare. Uh, it spends money uh, on climate change programs, etc. cetera. Uh, you were part of a call with President Biden on Monday. He says that the Build Back Better Act uh, needs to come down in order to pass the Senate from about $3.5 trillion to roughly $2 trillion, somewhere between $1.9 trillion and $2.2 trillion. If that's the only way to get it through the Senate, and it seems like it might be, would you support that? You know, Jake, what you call social welfare, I call strengthening our economy. When we talk about high quality, affordable health uh, child care in this country, uh, the expansion of Medicare to include dental, vision and hearing, uh, which is a reminder to me of, of my having watched my grandmother work well past the age of retirement just to pay for the high cost of prescription drugs and m- medical procedures not fully covered by Medicare. Uh, and, and of course, planet saving climate action. Uh, this is non-negotiable when it comes to whether we can have a vibrant economy moving forward. Uh, deep into already this 21st century economy. Uh, and of course, we'll make we'll create millions of good paying jobs in the process. Uh, this is something that obviously is is under negotiation. Uh, I appreciate Senator Sanders for calling out the intellectual laziness of Senator Manchin uh, when he said that, you know, I think one point five trillion should do it. And we don't want to move towards what he called an entitlement society. I thought we had advanced uh, beyond such outdated notions. And of course, companies, the biggest corporations in America get the most entitlements when we look at the tax breaks and the subsidies that are given to the coal industry in West Virginia, for example. Uh, so I'm focused on the merits. Let's see what we can include, what has to be included in this reconciliation bill and how much that adds up to. But I'm not going to give a number specifically. Mm-hmm. Uh, but I am I am optimistic given Manchin and Cinema finally coming to the table in response to the progressive strategy of insisting upon this original agreement that both bills pass rather than the bipartisan infrastructure bill pass first. So I know uh, progressives are frustrated uh, with moderate Democrats uh, wanting to, to shrink the, the overall price tag of the Build Back Better Act, although, of course, obviously it would be paid for with uh, corporate and, and uh, income and tax increases uh, on, the, on the higher bracket. But is it not also the case that without moderate Democrats, such as Joe Manchin in West Virginia, Democrats would not control the House and Senate? Isn't this part of what it means to be in the majority, that you have people in a, you have a bigger tent than the Republicans do right now? Well, I appreciate the ideological diversity within the Democratic Party. I think it's a beautiful thing. Uh, I would note that we're not dealing with moderates who are trying to obstruct President Biden's broadly popular economic agenda. We're dealing with conservative Democrats, to be more precise. Uh, And the fact is, these conservative Democrats ran on things like lowering the cost of prescription drugs, expanding Medicare to include dental, vision and hearing, making childcare high quality and affordable for every family in America. 
Uh, and so I don't think it's robbery to then ask these people who ran on these things, who ran on these broadly popular ideas when you do the polling among both Democrats and Republicans, to stay true to their word and to help deliver for the American people who are urgently in need of support from a federal government that far too often has failed them. There's a poll out. Uh, well, I'm sorry, that's all the time we have. Democratic Congressman Mondaire Jones of New York. It's your first time on The Lead. We really appreciate it. Thanks for coming, and we hope to have you back soon. Thanks for having me. Tonight, Treasury Secretary Janet Yellen joins CNN's Aaron Burnett. Please tune in at 7 p.m. Eastern. That is a must-watch. Coming up next, why Brian Laundrie's father has now joined the search for his missing son. Hmm, curious. Stay with us. Our national lead, a new addition to the search team in the manhunt for Gabby Petito's missing fiance, Brian Laundrie. Brian Laundrie's dad. He is helping investigators narrow down the weeks long 25,000 acre search in the Florida Nature Reserve by pointing out his son's favorite trails. That's what we're told anyway. Police hope it might help them piece together where Laundrie's fiance, who was found dead in Wyoming, Last month, what happened to her and where he is, Brian Laundrie. And as CNN's Leila Santiago reports, the Laundrie family just shifted their story of when they say they last saw their son. Today, Brian Laundrie's father, Chris Laundrie, assisting authorities in the search for his son. After leaving his house alone this morning, Chris is seen entering the Carlton Reserve along with the police. Brian reportedly told his parents he was headed to the reserve when they say they last saw him mid-September. The attorney for the family telling CNN Brian's parents believe he's still there, adding the parents see no reason to make a public call for Brian to surrender to authorities because he says, quote, in short, the parents believe Brian was and still is in the preserve. So there was no reason to issue a plea on media that he, Brian, does not have access to. The attorney also explaining to CNN why Brian's father is out in the reserve assisting in the search, saying, quote, Chris was asked to point out any favorite trails or spots that Brian may have used in the preserve. Although Chris and Roberta Laundrie provided this information verbally three weeks ago, it is now thought that on-site assistance may be better. Police are now denying that a recent campsite was found at the Carlton Reserve after a source close to the family reported one Wednesday, holding off Chris Laundrie from the search for a day while police investigated. Northport police telling CNN, quote, is it possible that they thought there might be a campsite out there or something they may have seen from the air, but when they got on the ground, that's not what it turned out to be? Sure, I think that's a possibility. But he also says, quote, Bottom line is that investigators are telling me that no campsite was found out there. All this coming as the parents changed their recollection of the day Brian went missing, telling CNN in a statement. The Laundries were basing the date Brian left on their recollection of certain events. Upon further communication with the FBI and confirmation of the Mustang being at the Laundry residence on Wednesday, September 15th, we now believe the day Brian left a hike in the preserve was Monday, September 13th. Meanwhile, Gabby Petito's parents and step-parents grieving her loss and speaking out to Dr. Phil about how they hope to find Brian Laundrie alive. I just hope he's found. I really do. I mean, like, alive. I want to see him in a jail cell for the rest of his life where he's an outdoorsman. Being in that concrete cell and he can't go see those trees and hug those, you know, and, and, and smell the fresh air like that. He's an outdoorsman that would be in a cement box. 
And we know that uh, Chris Laundrie, Brian's father, was in that reserve several hours today. We talked to the attorney for Laundrie's parents, and he told us that um, he was able to get into areas that were more accessible today because water had gone down. Uh, they went to areas that Brian was known to frequent, but bottom line, no discoveries today. Jake? All right, CNN's Leila Santiago outside the laundry home in Florida. Thank you so much. A new report detailing just how far President Trump went to try to overturn the presidential election and disenfranchise you. The details next. Quality sleep is essential, and that's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. So you can choose what's right for you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores. Sleep Number does that. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. I'm Dr. Sanjay Gupta, host of the Chasing Life podcast. In honor of our 10th season, we want to hear from you. Leave us a message at 470-396-0832 and tell us how you chase life. It could be used on an upcoming episode.